Good evening. So, um, this is our last session on our wisdom series. God willing, next week we're going to start a series on 1 Corinthians and work through the whole book through to around mid-September. That's the plan. So, um, that's about 18 weeks. So, just to kind of get you in the field, that is our plan as a church. We are open to God interrupting that. Though at this stage we feel peaceful that God is leading us to do that. So, um, that's, that's the idea. This is the last one we've been looking at. Um, We've been looking at sexual purity in the wisdom series. We've been looking at friendship. We've been looking at anger. All of these messages and others are online if you want to um, connect with them and, and listen. We're going to finish today looking at the subject of authority, which is a massive subject. Authority affects every one of us. Authority of parents, authority of teachers, uh, authority of bosses, managers, lecturers. I mean, you name it. All of us are impacted in some way by those over us in authority and perhaps for some of us, those under us in authority, whether employees or, uh, or children or just those who you manage at work or, or whatever. So it's a huge, huge deal and I just want to help you understand what authority is. It, it means jurisdiction, or it means you've got the right to rule. Just to help you understand the difference between power and authority, if you imagine a juggernaut steaming down a hill at 50 miles an hour, that's power, okay? That thing hits you, you're going to know about it. Then you imagine a policeman stepping out in front of that juggernaut and putting his hand out like that. That's authority. In terms of physical power, there's nothing the policeman can do, but he knows he's got the right to rule. He can stand in front and put his hand out, trusting that hopefully the, the driver of the juggernaut respects authority and uh, will put the brakes on. Um, if not, it's a different story, but that just helps you understand <laughs> authority at least. Now, <clears throat> my observation is that we tend as a, as a culture to hate authority. Um, for a number of reasons, there's, there's, there's a reason in, on one sense why people full stop hate authority and that's because um, our rejection of God and he's obviously the ultimate authority figure. And so in that sense there's this something inside of each of us that kicks against the authority of God. Who does, you know, who does he think he is to give these moral laws or whatever, that kind of attitude. So there's a kind of a, uh, that's widespread, that's global. But then there are maybe a couple of particular reasons why in the West we struggle like mad with authority. The first one is, is that one of the things in our culture, some of you that are not from the West, but are in this nation, you, you'll notice it much more than we do if you're particularly from nations that are different, but here we value the individual rights and freedoms more than anything else. That's the big, the big thing that we value, my individual right to choose. And, and the thing is, is that authority can threaten that, you see? So it can't, and it can make you, well, who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to say, I can't do this, I can't do that? It's my life. That kind of talk is very much, uh, not, it's not just kind of random talk. It comes out of a mentality that exalts the right of the individual. Now, if you go to a lot of other nations in the world where they find their identity much more in the corporate, in the family, in the wider family, in the national identity, you find it's completely different. They would even have portraits of their leaders in their homes, in their front rooms, in probably in the pride of place. They'd have the king or the president or whatever up on the wall, completely foreign to the English mentality. We may do it as a joke. You know, you'd more likely find it as a joke in many homes or something we did for a laugh. Whereas a lot of other nations, that would be a horrific idea. We, uh, 
We, for us to dishonour authority is normal. Many of you would have read the, um, the headlines in the, the Sun yesterday. Um, let me just try to find it. Um, squatter. Squatter hold up in number 10. Man 59 refuses to leave. That is a classic example of huge dishonouring of authority. Regardless of your political views, there's a man who's done his best over the years to try and steer a nation through a horrific financial global crisis. And after that, what is he rewarded with when he's just trying to wait to see how things settle down? He's rewarded with that. That is hugely dishonouring. But for us, it's kind of normal and, you know, it's just, it's just what, it's what you're allowed to do. The second reason is this, is that there's, I would say, been an almost wholesale abuse of authority by those in authority in our culture over the last few generations. So, um, abused school pupils, abused altar boys, abused sons and daughters, abandoned babies, neglected children, assaulted, manipulated and harassed employees, beaten wives, the list goes on. And what it does, if, that, if you've been at the sharp end of that, it can put something inside of you where you say, you know what? I'm not going to submit to anyone. I'm not going to... What gives you the right to tell me what to do? Coming out of a kind of a pain, coming out of a sense of I've been there, and those who are supposed to be looking after me, abused me, rejected me, neglected me, or whatever, and there's almost like a huge ball of anger and resentment that says, forget it, I'm doing my own thing, I'm not submitting to anyone anymore. And you find these people find it incredibly hard to hold down jobs as soon as the, their boss or their line manager brings something that could be perceived as a correction or something like that, it all blows up and you never see them again. This is a huge issue in the West. It's massive. But I think all of us recognise the need for authority because authority leads to order. We've all seen what's happened, haven't we, when nations throw, throw off the rule of law. Some of you will remember what happened in Rwanda in 1994 where they threw off the rule of law and for a hundred days, for a hundred days, 8,000 people a day were slaughtered. Over those hundred days, 20% of the population were killed as they threw off the rule of law and picked up the machetes and uh, really acted out their tribal, uh, tribal um, disagreements and hatred for one another and suspicions over one another. 800,000 people. Or in New Orleans, 2005, Hurricane Katrina comes in and you know, the, the levees break and the, and, and, and the place is flooded and there's a huge blackout. And some of the things that went on during that blackout, you don't even want to hear about, you know, but there were reports of people shooting at rescue helicopters, policemen looting. The rule of law goes suddenly. And I remember speaking to many young people who, you know, at times were just telling me how they hate the police and that. And I say to them, yeah, but okay, fair enough. But if there were no police, would you go out? I'm not sure I would. And I'm not saying the police are perfect by a long way, but what I'm saying is this, if there were no police, I'm not sure I'd really want to go out unless I was well armed. So we're these walking contradictions whereby we recognise the need for authority deep down, but we kind of don't like it. Why is that? It's because we're walking contradictions on every level. We were made in the image of God, and yet we've fallen, the Bible says, into corruption, into sin. We're not what we were supposed to be. We're a little bit like a mansion that's kind of been neglected for 200 years and uh, overgrown with moss and, and crumbling, uh, crumbling. And when you look at it, you can get a feel for what it was and the grandeur of it, but it no longer clearly is that. It's a bit of what we are like. We've been made in the image of God, and if you look closely, you can see that. There's still the glory there. And yet it's been ruined and it's fallen from its majesty, and we're by no means what we were 
created to be anymore. Naturally, we're born corrupted, fallen, broken, if you like. And um, I want to just give you a bit of a, 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 a background, a big picture on authority. Then we're going to unpack it in detail um, just to help you understand how, how Jesus, if you're a Christian, wants you to respond to authority that you're under and wants you to, how he wants you to exercise the authority that you have. Okay? Big picture. God's image, yes, made in God's image. But now we're fallen and we are rebellious. We were made to be subject to his authority and then out of that to exercise authority on creation over the creatures, over nature, the environment, to exercise on his behalf. So kind of like the whole of creation gets to see how good God is as humans that he has ordained go out and live on the planet. They express what God is like. They express his benevolent rule. That was God's plan. That's what the Bible teaches. Then Satan comes into the mix, Genesis 3, and what he does is he begins to slander the character of the one who has authority. He begins to slander God. You see it now. If this happens in your workplace, if people come up to you and start uh, uh, speaking badly against the boss, uh, but with, there's nothing found, there's nothing behind it, it's just kind of like, uh, how can I describe it? Slanderous gossip, it's kind of hearsay, rumours, that sort of stuff. That's satanic. Because Satan hates authority because he hates God. And if he can destroy and, and slander people's characters in authority, he loves to do that. You see, you see this is, it's, really, it's really important. That's what it says in the Bible. If someone accuses an elder, someone in leadership of something, make sure you've just got a few witnesses before you really begin to go for that. Because the, God recognises through his word that those in authority are particularly prone by Satan to let's attack, let's bring them down. So you've, got to, you've just got to be discerning in these matters. Anyway, Satan comes in and he slanders God's character. Eve believes him, she falls for it, Adam follows her and they make a bid for autonomy. Let's get out from under his authority and let's become like him. That's what we're told in Genesis 3. But what does it lead to? Well it leads to just uh, being alienated from God and it leads to really the authority that we were made to exercise. We still have in some degree but it's a, we use it in a corrupt way. Anyone ever come across a bad boss? Bad parent? Yes. Bad teacher. All evidence of the fact that we were made by God to rule, to exercise authority, but we've fallen away from him, and so now we no longer do it like he does. We don't look like him anymore. We do it in our own power-hungry, building our empire kind of way, and the result is disastrous, and it goes generation to generation to generation. But in Genesis 3, God promises that a king will come, and then Jesus arrives thousands of years later, and he exercises authority over demons, evil spirits, Cast them out with a word, and people are like, man, that guy, that guy, he, he was the crazy man of the area, you know. There was this guy who was, I mean, he was the, he was the local, I mean, you didn't go near him. Cut himself with stones, naked, lived among the tombs. People tried to chain him down, he'd break the chains. This guy was, you know, <laughs> cross, cross the road job, you know, when you see him. Jesus deals with, the, deals with the evil spirits that were tormenting this man. We are told that instantly he's clothed and in his right mind. You think, what is this? Authority over sickness. Authority over the weather. In a storm, you know, in a boat in a storm, and he, he calms the storm with a word. And his disciples look at each other like, who the heck is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And then just before he goes to the cross, he strips off and he washes his disciples' feet. He, you think, this guy with all this authority, what's he doing? He's humbling himself, washing the dirty Israel dust off of these men's feet. And, and they don't get it and it's confusing. What's going on? Here's a man who's representing what the authority of God looks like. It's glorious, it's complete, it's humble. 
Jesus, we are told in the Bible, is the exact representation of God's nature. You want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. Jesus said, anyone who wants to see the Father, look at me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. There he is, humble. All this authority, what's he doing? He's washing their feet. Then he goes to the cross. And at the cross we see the ultimate display of sub- submission. He submits to the Father's will. Where it's the Father's will that the Son, the perfect Son Jesus, should be crucified for the sins of the world. He submits to that. Even though he had done no wrong, he willingly goes to the cross so that he and his body will bear our sins so that we could be forgiven freely. Praise him. What a saviour. He willingly submits to the Father's will. He's under the Father's authority. But we are told at the cross, he deals with Satan once and for all. He strips the demonic powers and authorities of their authority, he overcomes them completely. It's a perfect victory of one who is under authority, but using his authority to the glory of God. Then he rises from the dead, just before he goes to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is my Lord, but he's more than my Lord, he's the Lord. So whether or not you name him as Lord, he's the Lord. It's what God has done, it's what God has accomplished. Uh, The Bible says that God has said, I have established, I have installed my king on my holy hill. The Father is delighted, he's established Jesus, the Son, as king. Jesus Christ is Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth. And then Jesus gives his people, the Holy Spirit, and for power and his authority to go and make disciples. That's what we're doing here tonight. I'm making disciples. I've been commissioned to do it by Jesus. If you're a believer, I'm making a disciple of you. In what sense? I'm teaching you. I'm bringing you back to the gospel, teaching you about Jesus again, so you receive that nourishment into your spirit. If you're not a believer, maybe you've never, you don't know Jesus, or you're, kind of, you're not quite sure where you're at, and you think, can he just go out to convert me? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I really am. But you haven't got to worry. I'm not going to lock you in until you confess. You're, you know, you're, listen, because we recognise that salvation belongs to God. Okay, it cannot be forced on anyone. But what I can do is tell you about Jesus. And trust the Holy Spirit will use my words to quicken faith in you and bring you to Jesus. That's most definitely on my heart. I'd love that to happen. So what we see is this. It's God's plan and order that people are under authority and exercise authority well. Authority is a good thing. How does this break down in the kind of crazy world that we live in? We're going to unpack two separate passages of Scripture Then we're done. Firstly, Romans 13, verses 1 to 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, what this is Paul who wrote this to Christians in Rome, and what he's saying is this everyone, it's universal. There's everyone, if you're a Christian, you're a believer, what Anyone anyway, okay, but particularly this letter was written to believers. Here's here's what you are to do. Be subject to the governing authorities. That means have an attitude of honour and an attitude of respect, regardless of whether you agree with what they're doing or not, okay? That's the point. Now you might think, well, why? Why should I? Here's why. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist, the authorities, have been instituted by God. We're going to get into some theological wrestling tonight because already some of you are probably thinking things like, well, what about Hitler? <laughs> and so you should be thinking that. We're going to work through this so you understand what's what. Okay? But, but Paul is clear here. There is no authority except from God. It's, authority is God's idea. If you demonstrate an authority, then you are demonstrating what God has given you, although you may be using it badly because you're a sinner. The authority is still from God. 
Okay? And everyone in authority has been established there by God. So whoever's going to end up leading this nation, right? Whoever, whoever, whatever deal happens, God. Sovereignly determining. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to come to terms with that. that is, to, to not is to seriously question the sovereignty of God. Which is a big deal. You want to start doing that, it's a huge, huge deal. So let's just work this through a bit. So, okay, uh, what about Hitler? Okay? What, what did God put him in place? Yeah. And that's what that says. Yeah. Twin tracking with that, throughout Scripture, what you find is very often that kings and rulers and leaders and empires are represented as demonic beasts. Okay? Twin tracking with it. So you've got this idea of the sovereignty of God overarching. He causes empires to rise and empires to fall. And then also, twin tracking, you get these, these leaders that are raised up with these empires, very often are depicted as demonic beasts. It's like a satanic evil thing. They're crushing, they're killing, they're you know, being aggressive, they're, they're acting in an ungodly way. And so it totally recognises that too. You, you see it all through scripture. Now let me just show you one scripture which will help us to understand this from 2 Chronicles. Now, um, this is where... This is where God is talking about his people Israel. Listen to what he says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, Israel's fathers, sent persistently to them, to his people, by his messengers, the prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. <coughs> Elsewhere, God says, I've held up my hands all day to an obstinate people. There's no remedy. You've got, you're not listening. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. Who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all. He, that's the Lord. He gave them all, his people, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all his palaces with fire, destroyed all his precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, what's going on here? God is saying, the Bible is saying this, God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, and elsewhere in the Bible, God calls Nebuchadnezzar an instrument of discipline in his hand. Discipline in who? His own people, Israel. Why? Because they were stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate, and kept turning away from him. So he raised up Nebuchadnezzar to punish them. To punish them. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil, wicked despot. Satanic. Loved worshipping false gods. What is going on here? Here's what's going on. Throughout scripture, when you take a step back and look at the panoramic purposes of God, you realise this. The devil turns out to be no more than a handmaid in God's kitchen. That is the panoramic big picture. You realise this God is completely unstoppable. Everything's on schedule. He, he's, you think, doesn't the devil get it? Because <laughs> he's obviously very, very intelligent. I don't know. I think there's probably more... So much fury inside Satan that it's kind of it's, it's beyond that. It's beyond whether it's working or not. It just wants to destroy. Then you take a step forward into the middle of it, and there is a lot of pain. 
And, there was, and so through King Nebuchadnezzar, you, you go to Jerusalem, you go back to, to 586 BC, whenever it was, into Jerusalem, this is happening. It's horrific. There may well be people caught up in it who weren't bad, but they're caught up in the thick of this big picture that's going on. And at that point, you think, oh man, this, so, what, so what, what are we saying there? That if, you, if I was there, let's say, in Jerusalem 586, and I, I'm just about to see someone get slaughtered, well, we don't do anything because it's God's purposes. No. No, 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 no. Saints are called to act, called to pray, called to work for God's glory and righteousness. Absolutely. But the whole time recognising there is a bigger thing going on. Now, here's the problem you're going to have with what I'm saying. Those two twin tracks, you can't pull them together. They never logically meet. We say, oh, I get it now. It's a mystery. But the Bible clearly reveals both. And it's so important because if you don't get both, you'll fall into error one way or the other. You'll fall into either this error where you just think, flip, devil's on the loose. Yeah? What are we going to do? And, I, you know, and you, sort of, you pray for 36 hours and you say, well, I can't sleep because, man alive, this thing's gone crazy. And you, you get into that. That is unsustainable and theologically wrong, <laughs> which is why it's unsustainable. Okay? The other mistake is this. Here's the other mistake. Prayer meeting. Well, God's sovereign. It's all going to pan out. Sorry. It's all going to pan out. It's a prayer meeting. Yeah, come on. Uh, God is sovereign. That is error as much as that is error. God reveals both. So that you engage in the fight fully, confident that we're going to win because God is sovereign. You get that? I engage fully. This doesn't, the sovereignty of God does not lead to my passivity. It, it, it galvanizes me to engage in the fight with confidence because I know we're going to win. Yeah? So where I see injustice and all that sort of stuff, I don't start speculating, well, where does the sovereignty of God fit in this? No, I fight it. Yeah, I fight it. That's what I do. The Bible says the secret things belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. But those things that have been revealed belong to us. Okay? There are things that have been revealed. Okay, they belong to you. Act them out. Okay? The secrets, leave them. You understand this? Okay? So every authority has been in play, put in place by God. That's the point I've been trying to make there with that very long one. But hopefully that was helpful. Was that helpful? Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, let's go to our final passage of, um, uh, of Scripture, Colossians 3. Um, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's all about authority. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything. This pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I'm going to unpack that, and we'll hit the master-slaves thing. Don't worry. Okay. Um, firstly, husbands... Uh, no, no, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the law. Let's just help you with that. When we go through 1 Corinthians, we're going to hit that probably a couple of weeks in a row. We'll get really into depth in that, okay? So, but I want to just hit it tonight because it's, it's in the scripture. Okay, husbands and wives are to reflect Christ and the church in the way that they relate. That's the dynamic of the marriage. The, the idea of their marriage ultimately is to paint a picture of the truth of the gospel. 
People should look at a marriage and get a picture of how Christ and the church relate to one another. Okay, that's God's plan. God's order is seen in that relationship. Now, I'll say this. All Christian relationships involve mutual submission. Ephesians 5 teaches us that. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So every Christian relationship we should be looking to outdo one another, prefer one another. No, really, it's no big deal. You go first. Yeah? Genuinely, in our hearts, preferring one another. That is the dynamic of every Christian relationship. Husband, wife, brother, sister, blah, blah, blah. However, there is a particular submitting that Christian wives are called to exercise toward their husbands in view of the fact that God has clearly and unequivocally established the husband as the covenant head in marriage. Hated by the world, fitting in the Lord. Okay? It's fitting. Now, I recognise when I say that, this is going to trigger all kinds of stuff in people's minds. And we will do a little bit of Q&A tonight, but stick with us for 1 Corinthians and it will become even clearer. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh. So you're called, there's a, there's, a, there's a headship calling, a leadership calling. Yeah, but lead like Jesus. Serve your wife. Sacrifice your life for your wife, your time, your emotional energy. Lead by the way you love, but do lead. But by the way you love, but do lead. <laughs> Children, obey your parents and everything. It's one of my favourites. <laughs> Kids, sit down. Listen to the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> It's very straightforward, um, very, very straightforward, isn't it? I bear him in everything, it pleases the Lord. Basically what this is saying is don't just, don't just do the things you know, that you want to do. Oh yeah, okay, okay dad, I'll eat the sweets. You know, you know, it, when, there's, when it's tied to your room as well, that's the whole idea there. So um, I'll be serious about this. There, there will be times when I take my kids to these scriptures. Because I want to model to them gospel motivation for their obedience. Yeah, not just because I said so. Okay, because God says so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fathers, fathers, Use your authority over your children wisely. This is very, see, no, this is two-way. If both parties do what they're supposed to do, it's beautiful. It's when one abdicates or one uh, perverts their role that the whole thing goes wrong. You see, the children, I believe it on the whole, especially as they get born again, the Spirit of God in them, they will obey as their father isn't winding them up all the time. Dads can do this. I've done this. Davina's pulled me up before. She said, Steph, she said, Winding them up. No, I'm not. <laughs> I am. You know, I've hit a button and I'm enjoying it. I'm like a four-year-old. You think, I believe. Thank God he understands. He says, Dads, don't do that. <laughs> Grow up. Okay? It's like, yeah. And there have been times, seriously, you, 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 I've had to apologise. I remember just the other day, I had to gather the family because God reminded me of something I said to one of my children on a holiday in Cornwall three weeks ago. Just convicted me. Brought back to one, convicted me. Oh, yeah. I had to gather them, just make my apology, you know. So I said that, and it just was, it was unhelpful. I'm sorry, but I needed to say it in front of the others because they were there when I said it. Just get right. And we've got to do this. It's so, so important. Otherwise, they'll just begin to despise you and hate your authority. And, you know, you're not helping them submit to your authority if you're not doing it. We're not to agitate our kids, rub them up the wrong way, press their buttons. Also, we're not to dominate and suffocate them, mock them, deride them, humiliate them, railroad them. They are precious and tender. We need to try and cultivate them. But uh, God, we need God's help to do that, I tell you. Amen. Now let's get on to the slaves and masters thing. Okay. Because some people say, the, Bible does, the Bible's not against slavery. Listen, the slavery that was going on here was very, very different from things like human trafficking or things like what happened in the 16th century in West and East Africa. It's completely different. Let me explain. What would, uh, it, it's estimated that um, around about zero, B, um, sorry, 0 AD, about a third of the population were slaves. Because what would happen is this, you'd be skint 
and you do, you've got no way out. And so what you'd do, you'd go to someone and say, look, can I belong to you, please? I've got wife, three kids. Can we belong to you and be your slaves? And, um, and basically it'd be like, yeah, well, you can look after my household and you have these certain jobs. And then over time, if you were a bit entrepreneurial or whatever, or um, kind of enterprise and you were able to develop a bit of work on the side while you were doing that, then you could buy your way out. It was, it was a, mut a mutual agreement thing. It was nothing like what comes to mind when we think of slavery. Okay? So a more appropriate phrase would be employees, employers. Okay? So just to understand that people, when people say the Bible is not against slavery, the, the, Bible, the Bible isn't talking about the kind of slavery we're thinking of. Okay? It's just important that you understand that. So, employees. Pretty much all of us, in some way or another, even if you're, you're a student, you know, uh, uh, apply this attitude to your lecturers and those who, your tutors. Fear God in your attitude to those who represent his orderly rule in your life. Okay? Remember Jesus is your boss. Give your whole heart to your work, be it studies or whatever. Expect your reward. That's what it says there. You'll be rewarded. If you don't do this, there is a payback of sorts. There is a payback of sorts. It says it here. So understand, you know what? I've been renewed in Christ. I've been redeemed in Christ. I'm no longer going to live in this persona of kicking against authority, doing my, my own thing. It's my life. No, it's not. I've been purchased. I've been bought. I belong to Jesus. Okay? Now I do what he says because he's my Lord and my master. I'm under his authority. Jesus, what do you say? Jesus says this. You know the way you are with your boss at work? Really treat him in a sense like he's me. Work heartily for him. Give yourself to what he asks you to do. Now, don't worship him. If he begins to abuse or say things that are out of line, then you draw certain lines, you draw boundaries. But on the whole, have the attitude towards him as if he were me. That's the Christian attitude in the workplace. That's the redeemed attitude. We should be noted for our diligence, our sense of really. It's not, not, and not as man pleases. It's so, I love the Bible. It gets to the heart of it, isn't it? It, it spots the fact that we're very tempted to do this. You know, the manager asks you to do something. Sure, absolutely, no problem. They've gone. You know, no, don't do that, okay? You act with integrity towards them. They ask you to do something. If you're not sure why, you ask them, what is that? When you say that, what you mean? They get clear on it. Sure, I'll do it. When they're gone and everyone is at pools where the people are waiting, the pregnant pools, waiting for the gossip to start, you just crack on with the thing. I'm not going down there. It's hard. You need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you can't live the Christian life in your own power. You know that, don't you? In the Holy Spirit, it's a miraculous life or any of the Holy Spirit. Bosses, bosses, be just. Managers, line managers, supervisors, be fair. Remember, you've got a master in heaven. You are under authority just as much as your employees. Amen? Amen. Amen. Five minutes Q&A, then we're going to praise the Lord. I know that authority tends to raise questions, so I thought I'd give you a chance. Catherine. Yes. And someone on my level, so I'm working as an ethan, yes. one of my friends goes, this isn't right, we should do something about it. Yes. What would my Christian response to that be? Yes, your Christian response, I think, to finding yourself working under an unethical boss is to graciously challenge the boss directly. Okay. Yeah? Um, that's your response. Anything, anything else is probably cowardly. Well, what are the other options? The other options are you just, well, we'll just get on with it. You know, um, Sorry, 
I think if there's a certain procedure in place and you can follow that, I think I would say that it's, it's kind of wise very often to gently and informally sometimes, I mean, you've got to read your context, but very often what can happen in that setting is, is that the, the person who is acting unethically suddenly feels like he's been, someone's coming down in like a ton of bricks and he had no sense those who was asked to do something had a problem with it and it can create a lot of tension in those relationships if neither one is sacked. Yeah? You've still got a word together, but they oh, used to have me in the back, all, all of that. And so sometimes it's just better to just confront things and say, can we just have a chat? You know this? I'm not sure about this. I mean, I've got my, you know, my muffin story. It's the only story I've got. You know, when my boss tried to get me to, I was a sandwich salesman. That's why they've been married me, so I had prospects. Okay, so um, <laughs> my boss asked me to, uh, to sell some muffins that were, out of, that were out of date. I knew they were out of date. He knew they were out of date. And I said, I, I, said, I, I don't think, I can't do this. And uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, what, I'm a Christian, these muffins are out of date, I'm not going to sell them on. <laughs> you know, I'll go to the steak for these muffins, you know. <laughs> now, at that point, probably what happened was this, he probably got someone else to sell the muffins. Now, at that point, what, what do I do? I recognise I'm working in an ungodly structure. It's never going to be perfect, okay? But there are certain things I'm not going to do. So it's just making that clear. But we did it in that way, it was done warmly, informally, gently, Oh, and so if you can be sorted that way, I think that will lead to better relationships in future. Um, in what kind of situation would you need to remove yourself? Yeah, I mean in terms of when it comes to when do you remove yourself from a situation, there's probably two things to ask. One is one is how much how so to what extent with good conscience can I continue doing this because nothing's changing but I'm still being asked to do it. When it reaches that point, then you have to remove yourself. Or if the thing just becomes actually so destructive to your mental state or whatever, you just think, I, I haven't got it anymore. I need to just hold my hands up and say, do you know what, I'm out of juice here and this is going to kill me if I carry on at that point. I think you've got to know, your, you've got to know yourself and your, what you can handle and then also you've, you've got to know where you draw the line on certain issues. You've got to be clear. So it could be you make the call on that front or on that front. Is that helpful? Is that okay? There's another hand up there, was that? Lizzie. Yeah, um, so, um, I'm just respect the person who's yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's like, sure. With the North Korea thing, just, just to maybe help you to give you a framework there, it probably wouldn't be helpful because what would happen was is this, that sinners would displace sinners. So we mustn't be naive and assume, assume that because this is bad, what will replace it will be good. I think we've got to, be, we've got to, we've got to just give, work that one through a bit. Um, I think what I would say is, is that, it, that it's totally appropriate that we speak out I think, I think actions, righteous actions, are totally allowed by God. Uh, in some settings, it was totally appropriate and right that Christians end up in prison and end up being prosecuted because they're acting according to their conscience in that sense. But I think always things should be... If you look at it like when Paul has to face the high priests, you know, and Jesus even facing the high priests, there's a sense in which they're not backing down on certain things and end up getting condemned. But there's a sense of they, they honour the protocol all the way. They do. 
Paul, you know, calls the priest a whitewashed wall, a high priest a white, whitewashed wall, and then someone, I think, slaps him or something, and says, you can't talk to a high priest like that. And then Paul goes, it was a high priest, I didn't realise. Okay? Puts it, do you see what I'm saying? So you, I, think it's, I think there is a, you, you honour the protocol, but I think you never do things that God has told you you shouldn't do, and you never don't do things that God has said you should do. So if a government comes in place and says, you can't talk about Jesus anymore, preach him as the only way, no, I, I'm going to disobey that. Because a higher authority has told me that I must tell people about Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? So, go on. You, I think we respect authority because all authority is from God, but you relate in different ways to different authority figures. Yeah? Lucy, then her. There's a question. <laughs> Why, if God is in charge of all authority, does he put ungodly people? Because, uh, because we're all ungodly. And God has chosen in his, in his sovereignty to exercise his rule through people. And he's never gone back on that. But his plan is this, is that through Christ there will be a new humanity that comes through that do live righteously, that are filled with the Holy Spirit and that are not afraid to move into those places of authority, whether it's parenthood, whether it's school teacher, whether it's government, and say, we're going to go and we're going to do this differently. And so we've got to say, listen, God has chosen in his wisdom to do it through people. Let's live holy lives, let's get our hearts right and let's step up. That's my best way of answering that without becoming hypothetical. Hannah. Yes. But as another colleague of the teacher, I have to stand by the teacher even though it seems to be unfair. Right. It's very awkward and sometimes I take the child's side but then the teacher does that as well. So yes. That's huge, isn't it? So you're working as a teaching assistant or something like that in a school, and a, and a teacher does something unjust to a pupil. You're supposed to side with the teacher. How do, you, how do you work that out? I think, without getting into detail of, in the moment, the particular dynamics of it, you've got to work out a way of letting the teacher know you are for them, but letting the teacher know that you're not going to side with them when they're acting unjustly or out of anger or whatever. You've got to d develop that in the relationship. O that will only come through very wise talking. It'll involve a lot of encouragement. It'll involve a lot of gentleness. It will uh, they need to know that you are for them. When people don't know you're for them, they start acting freaky. The teacher knows you're for them, you're with them, you really want to support them, so you, you, you articulate that to them. And you say, but do you know when you did that, I kind of felt like it was coming out of anger more than anything, and I'm going to struggle to get behind you when you do that kind of thing, because I feel like it might... Can we just talk about this? At that point, if they... Freeze up on you or start acting in intimidating ways or whatever, then you go. See, teachers are accountable to line managers, um, department heads, etc. Then you say, well, look, if, we, if, we, if, they're gonna, if this is going to remain, we can't, we can't live like this. I'm going to have to get someone else in. If you, if, you mustn't get into that, I mustn't grasp mentality. It's crazy. It's ungodly. It's a demonic stronghold of thinking. If, there is, if you can't go to someone over the person who's abusing their authority, what the heck? What is that? It just perpetuates abuse. You've got to break that mentality. But you do it gently, warmly, encouragingly, graciously. But you do it. Come on, one more question. Bob. Do you have any suggestions of how to deal with someone who you're in authority over yep. who does not want to submit to you? <laughs> if you're in authority over someone and they don't want to submit to your authority, then the conversation has to be had. You've got to grasp the nettle graciously, encouragingly, gently. <laughs> okay? 
But you've got to grasp the nettle and say, okay, here's, here's the deal. This is, how, this is the relationship. This is how it should be working. But I'm getting the feeling like you're kind of resisting me. It just kind of feels like I might be wrong. You start accusing, walls go up, okay? So you say, I might be wrong, but this is how it feels like. Tell me how you're seeing it. And you've just got to, you've got, you've got, you've got to, you've got to get that dialogue going. If it feels like it becomes a slippery bar of soap job, yeah, wet soap, yeah, in the end, you're going to have to say, do you know what? Feels like it, it, this is feel like we're not getting anywhere here, but this dynamic is not working. Okay. Now, at that point, it depends very much on what kind of relationship it is. If it's an employer-employee, it's easy. You say it's not working out. I'm going to have to let you go. Okay. It's, you have to. You can't work. You can't go on working like that. If it's parent, child, husband, wife, there's a, it, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's just a lot, more, a lot more work to be done, and it, might, it may take a bit longer, but you, you've got to get there. But what you do in that situation is then you, I would say you bring in a third party. Sometimes you get in a situation where it's like bang, 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 and you're hitting walls. You say, we need a third party. And myself and Davina have had it. We get these seasons, it's like, we're just like, we're, we're not understanding each other. We are, you know, we, we, we've hit this thing where we can't find a way through. We get friends in that we both trust and that we both love and we both respect and say, look, can you just come and help us? be a third party here, because we're probably, we're probably both so blinded by our, by our own blind spots that we're just not being helpful anymore. So I think that really helps, just open the thing up a bit again, save it getting really intense and unhelpful. Okay, I hope that helped. Uh, <laughs> there may be more questions, we'll deal with them another time. I do want us to be able to gather back and worship Jesus, that our lives have been saved by him, that our minds are being renewed by him, and that through his victory on the cross and resurrection, that actually there is one in complete charge who is absolutely glorious. Not just in the sense that his character is perfect, but he is, in what sense, in that he was just like us. He faced every temptation. He knows what it's like to struggle with what we struggle, temptations, yeah? He's a sympathetic high priest. And I think it's so important that we gather back and say, Lord, we gladly put ourselves under you. We gladly submit to you because we know you will use your authority to wash our feet. <laughs> You know, and when you do that, we want to just throw our crowns at your feet and honour and worship you back. And we get that glory love circle going. Yeah? So let's do that. Let's take the bread and the wine to remember that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed.